Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Eric, the CTO at WSO2, and we discuss how to get comfortable being uncomfortable, how WSO2's Corio platform makes cloud integration easy, and the history of the cloud from invention to today. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. tell you a little story about how I got into computers and IT. Where I went to college, they had a science credit. I was actually an American studies uh, major, which is history and literature combined. But we had to take science credits. And our first class was an introduction to science and technology, a lot of film strips and shows and presentations. And one of them said that uh, basically computers were taking over the world. So I thought, heck, I better, you know, if that's the case, I better learn something about them. So I took a Fortran programming class and I got through that. And then I took uh, COBOL, COBOL II, computer architecture, every class they had. And because uh, my school was a co-op school, I had an internship as a programmer. Then uh, when I got out of college, they offered me a job back. And that's kind of how I got into it. And I thought at that time, okay, you know, I'll just do this for a little while till I find something in, in a writing career that I can move to like journalism or, or something. But you know, I guess it's just as well that that never happened. But I did end up writing a few books, so I guess I can claim to have achieved somewhat of that goal. Uh, it, yeah, there you go. Yep. Even though they're technical books, you know, it was still still something. And uh, yeah, so that was my, my first job. Actually, it was kind of also interesting. I was working for Criminal Justice Information Systems out in Chicago. And you notice I said that Chicago. I said that right. I hope with Chicago accent. Anyway. <laughs> One of the one of the uh, prisons we went to was the prison where you know Joliet Jake was in the Blues Brothers was incarcerated in Joliet. So we did the prison system for that. I went out there, interviewed the guards because they were our users, and um, I can tell you that's not the door in the movie. That's not the door they used to get let prisoners out. That was <laughs> traumatic, <laughs> traumatic entry. But it was kind of uh, interesting. We were um, at that time modernizing these old systems in the prisons and. They, uh, they were losing prisoners because they didn't have an up-to-date track of where everybody was. They had a batch system they'd run every night. And they'd get these little index cards. Somebody would come to the front desk and look for somebody. Wait, so I just want to be clear. Prisoners were escaping because their IT systems weren't up-to-date? No, they weren't escaping, but they didn't know where they okay. were. Because got it, got they might it. have been in the, at the lunchroom or in the in the, in the uh, infirmary if they were sick or the library. They might have a lawyer coming to see you. they might be on a work release program and they wouldn't know or, or one of the worst things would happen sometimes the guard would change guards would change roommates like if they wanted to see a fight or you know maybe somebody wanted to be somebody's boyfriend or something and they would mix it up and you couldn't find them so we were having to put in this system where the guards were all accountable for all the changes that they would make and you had an online system you could query to find out where they were at any moment of the day i know it sounds like a kind of funny thing but it was an administrative uh, challenge that we were able to overcome by modernizing their their system. So that's kind of a theme been a theme for me in my career, just helping to modernize things uh, in you know in different different areas that I worked in. I uh, went from from there to a company called Digital Equipment, which at the time was number two computer company in the industry, just behind IBM, inventors of uh, mini computer basically uh, at the time, and. Um, 
I ended up in the transaction processing group there. First, I was in the database group, and that was the transaction processing. And the architecture of their uh, TP monitor product was very much similar to what I worked on in Chicago. We had a front end and a back end, so it's a you know a two tier system, and we dedicated all the client traffic on the on the front end for performance and put servers on the back end and. So we were kind of modernizing transaction processing at that time. It was dominated by IBM, and we had a you know better solution. And so eventually, I ended up being a, a getting into an architecture role there, designing the future system. The, everything that we had was based on a proprietary operating system, proprietary hardware back in those days. And then we were modernizing it to put it on Windows and Unix. And so I, you know, I was doing that. But then uh, Compaq acquired the company. And uh, for a while, we were working on this project together with Microsoft to bring our transaction processing and database technology over to Windows NT, because Compaq thought that would be the next big wave with adoption of Enterprise NT. And yeah. after they acquired digital, they had like 45% of the NT market. But Microsoft pulled the plug on it in the end because Intel wasn't ready with their 64-bit chip, even though my company was, but Microsoft didn't want to go to market with just digital 64-bit chip because we were kind of a small player compared to Intel. And uh, after that, I had to go on to my next job, which was at Iona Technologies. And I started out as the transactions architect there. But because I knew a bunch of people at Microsoft from having worked at Compaq, I was able to uh, talk to Microsoft about SOAP and web services, which is just starting around that time. And I was able to be, we were able to become the first company outside of Microsoft to publicly support SOAP and WSTL and web services standards and help bring them into W3C and Oasis and so on. And that was where I met the founders of WSO2. Uh, oh, cool. And Paul, they were also working on web services in those days. And then um, after my company was acquired, um, one of our biggest customers, Credit Suisse, here in New York, where I'm living now, offered me a job. So last 10 years or so, I was working in financial services as chief architect for different divisions of banks and trying to modernize systems, introducing SOA, big data, microservices, cloud computing, that kind of thing. And then last uh, summer, Sanjeeva let me know that there was the opening for a CTO at WSO2. I thought, great. I love Sanjeeva. I love WSO2 and they have great technology. And the opportunity was to come in and help with the next generation of products we're working on more, you know, going toward the cloud. Traditionally, we've been an open source on-prem company. have been very successful with that. But as the industry is changing toward the cloud, we need to change. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to do. Again, trying to help modernize uh, what, what we're up to. And uh, so far, it's been pretty cool. And one other, other thing I should mention about WSO2 that's really attractive to me is this language they have called Ballerina which is, uh, you know, when I was at City, I was part of the cloud migration team, helped getting things onto Amazon and Google and Azure, things like that. And it's such a struggle to go from existing systems that were coded for, in some cases, mainframes or for large Unix systems in Java and move those over to the cloud because now you've got to refactor everything into microservices, change the way everything communicates, how everything is designed and broken up. And if you had a programming language that would help you with this, I think it would be a big, a big help, big improvement in the industry. So that's something else we're we're kind of working on there in the in the in the background. That's really cool. So it sounds like your whole career was just like going from one company that's going through major change 
and then like getting them up to speed with that change, then going to another company that's also going through a major change and continuing to just modernize and change companies with the that, times. That's what I really like to do. I really like to get new things adopted. You know, I can see the potential of a, a technical a technical solution for solving a particular problem. You know, back in the my first job, the problem we were solving was online information about prisoners so you could find them. And, and you could do that with this tech, new techno or technology by modernizing the systems. And ever since then, I've kind of looked for how can I solve problems with new, new technology that haven't been solved before, or maybe solve them in a better way and, and modernize things. A absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah, I was, I forget who I was talking to on the podcast a little while ago, but they're talking about how when they're looking to hire engineers, they're always looking for people that they prioritize critical thinking skills and willingness to learn way above any kind of expertise in a given tool or anything. Sure. Um, and I think you're a prime example, like just that brief description of your career of be, you're like an expert in being nimble and learning. <laughs> <laughs> and like, well, I feel like gotta, that's a... You got to learn, learn new things all the time. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure throughout all those different applications of change, you had to be using different tools the whole time. And each time, each different tool requires learning a whole new set of skills around that. Um, I guess I want to ask, like, how did you fine tune that skill of learning quickly to use all oh, the right gosh, tools. Uh, you know it's funny I, I belong to new york cto club here and we had a speaker at our meeting last week who is uh i, I can't think of her name uh, oakley i think barbara oakley and she's made a career out of writing books and cr doing courses on how p how to learn new things as she had to do that at, uh, when she became a professor and changed careers and she talks about the different parts uh, of the brain and i, I I'm just getting familiar with her work. I just wanted to mention it because there's a whole field of study on this that I was unaware of. But for me, it's kind of goes just back to when I first was learning about computers that, you know, I, I first time I saw a programming language, it, I didn't know what was going on. You know, you can miss a period in a certain place and it gives you an error and you can't compile the program. And I'm like, if you know that's an error, why don't you just put the thing in there? And, and <laughs> why are you making me? you know, put a dot there, you knew it was wrong and you could have fixed it. Then I later realized they just, they don't know anything. You have to tell them every last thing very carefully, very specifically, because uh, it all gets compiled down into, you know, binary stuff that's executable. And I just felt um, after a while, it just it kind of informal way of putting it, but just beating my head against the wall for so long, just with a goal in mind of getting this, you know, learning this and making it work. It's the kind of you just have to put your head down and, and go through it and do it and take your lumps. And uh, one of the things that stuck with me from Barbara's presentation was you have to feel comfortable being uncomfortable when you learn something new. And that's that's not always easy, especially if you get into a more senior role and people are looking to you for, for leadership or you're trying to create a, a strategy or a plan that you get others to follow and then you show that you're, you're having to learn something new and you look like maybe you don't know what you're doing, but that's, you have to be able to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the phrase get comfortable being uncomfortable, I feel like it's tossed around so much, but it 
definitely can't be discounted. Like we all have kind of a propensity to focus on the things we're good at and spend mm -hmm. time on the things we're good at. Cause that's easy and that's fun, but it, you really get a lot more value out of spending time on the things you're not good at and focusing on those. Yeah. Even if it's not so much fun. That's yep. <laughs> Another thing you can, you, I, I try to do is set aside time, you know, blocks of time to do, to do learn, learning new stuff because if you don't dedicate some time to it, you, like you said, you, you tend to gravitate to things that are more fun or more interesting and learning something new requires discipline and requires going through uh, some, uh, you know, let discomfort where you're making the adjustment. And I think it helps if you just set aside some time because it takes a while to get up to speed on what you're doing and to learn something it just takes time and you got to set some time aside. Absolutely. What are you, what are you learning right now? Okay. My, <laughs> my, my big challenge right now is learning the, the ballerina programming language. And, uh, that's what my, my company has been working on for the last five, six years. And I, you know, I, I've got the theories and the concepts of it and I can use our, our new product Corio, which is built on, on ballerina. And I'll talk more about that in a minute, but I need to get really into the bits and bytes of the language and just master it. And that's, uh, that's something I'm just finding a little bit uncomfortable, but I really just, just have to do it. That's yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about Corio? What, what is it? Yeah. So Corio is our new, uh, integration platform as a service product. So it runs in, in the cloud. So it's part of our, our move from open source to, to the cloud. You know, as the market's moving that direction, we got to go as well. And it has a great foundation on the ballerina programming language. And the programming language uh, was designed originally for abstracting integration because we're an integration company primarily, although we have, you know, identity access management product as well. But most of our focuses on integration and the language is meant to be a type of syntax that makes it very easy to create integrations and abstract middleware and all those kind of tough complexities you get when you try to put different systems together. Uh, but it turns out when you're doing that, it also creates a language that makes it easy to do some other things. So for example, the language has primitives in it that create sequence diagrams. So a Corio product as an editor where you can edit sequence diagrams and it'll generate ballerina code. So you have a side-by-side -side picture of your code and your diagram and you change the diagram, it changes the code, change the code, it changes the diagram. Oh, so this cool. is like a really, yeah, it's like a really cool thing to help with uh, any level of developer to be more, more productive because you can really see the integrations and the flows that you're creating when you want to put a couple APIs together to solve a problem, you can see it, you know, right there, like you're trying to maybe trigger something on a GitHub issue to put it into Google Sheets. You can just see what it looks like in the diagram. You can see side by side what it looks like in the code. And if there's something that's a little easier to change in the code, you can just do it there and it goes back to the diagram. Nice. So the, so the diagram is like kind of a drag and drop kind yeah. of interface? Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and the other thing we're, we're doing with it, again, based on one of the things that, that's in Ballerina is you can get out of Ballerina all the metadata and annotations that you need to generate Docker files and Kubernetes configs. So we've got actually a push button uh, deployment. So after you create your integration or your API or your microservice, you can just push a button in the, in the um, 
IDE and it'll generate all the stuff you need to deploy out into Kubernetes. So it's kind of like, um, you know, you got DevOps, or, you know, like a lot of people struggle with DevOps and SRE setups for Kubernetes. You can just, you know, if you don't, if you're not a big shop or you, you don't have uh, a lot of expertise in those areas, you can just get Corio and, and push a button and it'll do all that for you. For those that don't know, can you give like a baseline understanding of what Kubernetes does and what it's used for? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, Kubernetes comes out of, of Google. Actually, Google kind of invented the cloud, just to put a short summary on it, and um, cloud computing. And this part of cloud computing is how they set up the the uh, slots for, for, con for containers. So I kind of, I mean, people talk about Kubernetes as like it's a new app server. But it's not really. It's kind of like a pegboard. You know, got to you put this thing on the wall. It's got a bunch of holes in it, and you put your pegs in it. And the pegs, are, in this case, are containers. So Kubernetes is this this system of of clusters and pods that are deployed out on the, the cloud infrastructure. They're just waiting for uh, the containers to be deployed into them. So the way it works in these these big shops like Google and Uber and Airbnb and uh, I don't know, like Twilio or um, Spotify, you know, or, or Etsy, you know, somebody has a big cloud deployment, they have a team called the Site Reliability Engineering Team that sets up all the Kubernetes clusters and the developers are responsible for creating the containers and the config file to hand off to the Site Reliability Team that then takes the containers, the config and deploys everything out onto uh, Kubernetes to get it to actually run. So okay. Definitely the runtime, but it kind of is set up specifically for containers, and most of the time that's Docker. So you get something in a Docker file, give it to the site reliability engineering team, give them your config, how many copies of this container you want to run, you know, how reliable you want to be, how secure, that kind of stuff, and then it just gets deployed out. It's kind of like the deployment map for taking the container and throwing it out there into these data centers. Cool. So. Corio helps integrate between a, the Ballerina language and lots of other things. And it also helps you with your Kubernetes deployment, making that easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Thank, thanks for that like overview there. Oh, thanks for a good summary. That was uh, really well done. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, well, so you mentioned that Google invented the cloud. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that well, and the history there. It's one of my favorite topics, actually. So I, I go to a conference that was related to my transaction processing days called High Performance Transaction Systems. It's every two years in Asilomar, California. And it's basically the, a guy named Jim Gray, who was one of the inventors of a lot of transaction processing technology, started it as a way for people in the field to exchange notes on what they're working on. And uh, one year in 2007, they actually invited all, a bunch of big web companies, including Google and PayPal and uh, and eBay and uh, I'm not sure if Facebook was there, but they may have come later. Uh, but there's just you know I guess Yahoo was there and LinkedIn. There's this long list of web companies, and they Crazy. were presenting about their infrastructure, and they were basically telling a room full of people who had invented databases, transaction processing monitors, app servers, all the middleware, all the system software that everybody's using to run their enterprise IT departments. These web companies were telling them, we can't use your stuff. It doesn't work for us. And we're all going, what are you talking about? And so Google 
started the story and they explained how when they were spun out of Stanford, they went and looked at all of the options for what kind of uh, infrastructure to set up to run their search engine on. They looked at the biggest mainframe, the smallest computer, and after they'd gone through and evaluated everything, because it's a new business, right? So they just had to figure out what they're gonna do. They realized that no matter how much money they spent, the biggest, most reliable mainframe, there was still a chance that that mainframe was going to fail and that they would have to build some recovery systems around that failure to accommodate that failure, uh, no matter how much money they spent. So they thought, okay, if we're always gonna have to deal with failure, why don't we spend the least amount of money possible on infrastructure, we'll just buy commodity disks, like three and a half inch disks, commodity CPUs, commodity network cards, all PC parts, create PC-based servers, and then we'll create a layer of software on top of that that will handle failure. So we don't care if these components fail, the system will just keep going because we've engineered around that. Now, none of the products that uh, people have been using up to that point in the enterprise work that way because we always assume that I remember even at digital equipment, we were assuming this, we could engineer failure out of the computers eventually. We'd get closer and closer and closer. And then we thought someday we're gonna be 100% reliable. But you know what? Now that I think about that, I think that's not likely at all because computers <laughs> are, no, well, really, if you think about yeah. it, computers, what are they? They're very, they're very uh, fragile electronic things that are programmed by people that you know, put a lot of bugs in their software, not on purpose, but, you know, I mean, getting right. completely bug-free software is almost impossible. And if you think about that and, you know, the electric instability of electrical systems, and if you think about, you know, like the, the, the fat finger operator problems, you know, people make mistakes with operations, yep. you're almost never, you, you can't assume this. So I think Google changed the whole assumption on its ear and said, well, things are going to fail. Let's just plan around that. And one of the first things they did was they decided to create their own file system because they had to insulate for the failure of these, these PC components, which are consumer grade components, right? So now all of a sudden we've got enterprise level systems being run on consumer grade hardware and software because they put in things like their file system and their file system to get around this failure problem, just to give you an example how they did it, they said, okay, every time we write something to disk, we're going to write four copies to four different machines. So if any machine fails, we still got three copies of the same thing. Oracle does not work this way. MemQ series does not work this way. They write one copy to disk and they make sure it's written safely. And that's that. They don't write four copies. They that use seems the crazy now. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, and they, but they, and most of these companies use the operating system file system. Nobody would think of inventing a new file system because that's part of the operating system. Always people use that, but they needed to create a system that would tolerate any failure of any component at any time and keep going. And they did that by duplicating things out. And that has informed uh, so many things, changed so many things that now you have this whole class of cloud native software, cloud native products. You have a whole foundation on cloud native computing. And it's all about, this new model that Google started back in uh, 2000, 2001 or two, maybe 2005, 20, 20 some years ago. And, and it's just caught on. Everybody uses it. Um, you know, once they saw, oh, well, the reason it caught on was because this actually allowed them to have the most cost efficient IT infrastructure ever, ever invented. 
So they could undercut all the competitors on the on the ad prices for their 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 ads. Yahoo yeah. noticed this, and Yahoo's going, "How the hell can Google charge like a tenth of what we charge for ads? How can they possibly do this?" So eventually, word got out, and everybody started adopting this. And uh, Amazon recoded their. Well, in those days, web companies often rewrote their software because it wasn't scalable enough. Rewrote their applications, and so Amazon, in one of their rewrites, went to this model, commodity. Uh, server infrastructure, as it's called, and at some point, you know, they were doing Amazon Web Services, which were initially a way for people to get information off their website through APIs. And then they're they're like, "What do we do next?" And they said, "Oh, you know, we have all this kind of excess capacity in our commodity server infrastructure. Let's rent that out." So they created EC2 in 2006 and S3 in 2006 as Web additional web services. That's, that's why it's called Amazon Web Services, because you yeah. can access compute in EC2 through the web API. You could access storage through the web API, and uh, eventually that just became the model everybody's following. That that actually reminds me of another podcast I was listening to recently called HPE Tech Talk. It's just like a tech podcast by Hewlett Packard. Yeah, and so recently. HP actually built a supercomputer that was sent up to the ISS to help running um, experiments on the International Space Station. Oh, cool. And that presented a really interesting problem because, uh, as you were saying, like computers, like failure is kind of inevitable in computers. Um, and this is like a really advanced, expensive machine that they're sending up. They can only send one of them. And so it's like kind of reconciling the common adage of like failure is inevitable in computing with the phrase failure is not an option from space yeah um yeah and so yeah they were talking about just like all of the fail safes that they had to build into that computer to try to make it as failure proof as possible and i don't know that's just it was really interesting i i'd recommend it if if you uh are in the podcast but yeah um, yeah thanks that does sound interesting it's a classic problem it's been there forever but you know this whole move toward cloud computing has been creating its own complexity you know amazon got up to 175 services now from the original two wow and yeah and people are going to the cloud now i've got all this complexity and cloud native computing foundation has hundreds of projects all built up you know over time on this shift toward commodity pc level uh, consumer grade uh, hardware and software for running big enterprises and you have but you have to get all and you can get a lot of benefits out of this you get the reliability benefit agility benefit scale almost unlimited scale because you can just keep replicating your your programs but you have to engineer for it you have to you know take your java programs that you wrote one way for the app server and create microservices out of them and figure out a different way to deploy them and containerize them put apis around them and figure out how to orchestrate them and deploy them and connect them all together and figure out how they're going to interact with data. And all of these things are, are different and complex. And that's why, you know, what we're doing is trying to move to abstract these problems for people a little better. You know, the cloud computing has gotten for all its complexity to a certain level of maturity. You, know, you have the microservice issue, then you needed to have containers, uh, and then you need to have container orchestration. But now that you've got that, you can kind of say, okay, we've got the foundational elements of what is needed to get programs created the right way and deployed the right way to take advantage of all cloud 
native infrastructure and get all the benefits of reliability and stability, scale, agility, but you still have to kind of recode for it. But now that we've got this certain level with Kubernetes, we can say, all right, we can abstract all this. We can do it with a click of a button. We can create the containers, create the Kubernetes and put it out there. And on the other side of it, what we're doing is abstracting the developer experience. So, you, so what we're trying to do to help people take advantage of the cloud and get to the cloud and get all those benefits is make it easier to create your programs with this graphical interface and the code without losing any of these capabilities of deployment that you have in a CI CD pipeline and DevOps and SRE and all this kind of stuff. And we think that's really gonna help people. The customers we show it to think, this is gonna really help us be more productive. We can get stuff done you know, much more quickly that they need to get done than, than before. So that's where we're trying to hit. We might be a little late to the game, but I think we're coming into it at a point where we can take advantage of a lot of what's gone on before and build on it in a good way to help people, you know, get things done much more quickly and easily. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like as a company, your core competencies are really lined up well to take advantage of like the current landscape. Yeah. Well, yeah, we spent, um, we've been in business 15, 16 years almost. And most of that time has been in, in integration, which is a kind of abstraction. When you have yeah. to figure out how to put systems together, you have to figure out what's the common point and how they can connect. And that's very similar to the kind of work you have to do to make things behave correctly in, in the cloud. Yeah. So I've read that at WSO2, you have an opinionated view of the cloud. Ah, that's it. Can you tell me what that means and like, what's the difference between opinionated or non-opinionated? Well, opinionated pretty much just means we're going to chart the path for you. So... There might be 175 services on Amazon and, I don't know, three, 400 on Azure and a few hundred on, on Google, but you may not need all of those things to get certain jobs done. And the job that we're providing for you with API creation, API integration, microservice development, we think we know which services that you need and we think we know which CI CD pipeline you need and which Kubernetes deployment scheme you need. So. I shouldn't say what you need, but the opinion is we take a view, our view of how this works best and make it kind of like the default. So if you just want to cut through all the complexity and have a simple solution, that's the opinion. That's based on the, the opinion. That's what that means. Our opinion okay. is the best way to do it. Got it. So you, you kind of take all of the information in of what the client is trying to do, and you're the expert on the best tools to use to get to that end goal. Right. Exactly. Yes. Gosh, that's another good summary. <laughs> that, that's, that's my whole shtick. Come work for us. <laughs> Help, us with, <laughs> Help us with the content. Yeah, sure, man. <laughs> Can you also tell me a little bit about WSO2's identity server? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad you asked. I uh, should never forget about this. I get carried away with the, the cool cloud stuff. <laughs> hey, identity server stuff is cool too. It is. It is. Uh, actually, my you know my last job at City, I was uh, chief security architect at Consumer Bank, and we did a lot with uh, identity. So in this case, what we're talking about is um, customer identity access management. Or if you know, like to talk about one of our big customers, the Hilton Loyalty Program. If you come into Hilton Loyalty Program, they'll ask you to put in a you know username or an email and a password, create an account. So that's what our software does is it manages the account for the username and password 
And if you need like a step up authentication, like a two-factor, like an SMS or a QR code, we can add that in. Or if you want to add login with Google or login with Facebook, you know, you see that on a lot of websites or login with GitHub. That's the right. kind of stuff we, we set up for you. So we have all the developer libraries that you need to enable all those capabilities for your applications and for your APIs. And for APIs in particular, is a good uh, connection point with Curio, which is creating APIs. And when you create APIs and deploy them, and they're, especially when they're publicly facing, facing the internet, those APIs need to have identities uh, so that you can control the, the uh, authentication to make sure somebody has the right login credentials, the login keys when they, when they come in uh, so that you, you can control who has access to your, your APIs. And then once they're in, their identity can be associated with some authorization. And especially in the cloud, this is really important because you have all these shared services out there that you need to lock down. So many incidents of data leakage in the cloud come because of overprivileged account access to shared data. And, you know, somebody gets in, sometimes the blast radius, as they say, can be pretty big because in yeah. the cloud, everybody's sharing the same virtual data center. Basically, once you get in there and you have these overprivileged accounts, you can get data from all kinds of places. This is kind of what happened with the Capital One breach a couple of years ago. Somebody got in with overprivileged account, figured out how to decrypt all the customer information from Capital One and siphoned it off. So you have to be, especially in the cloud, very careful about that. And this is what identity access management helps you with. So is your identity server mainly like consumer facing, like with uh, like customer identities, or is it also like, um, what's it called? The employees are. Yeah, for employees yeah. at, at companies as well. <clears throat> You can use it for that and some people do, but we try to focus on the customer side and make sure all of the uh, capabilities are there for login with Facebook, login with Google, two-factor authentication, uh, federation of, of, of uh, logins from different applications. So if you've got different systems like SaaS systems and your own application, you want to have single sign-on, we can set all that up. So we tend to focus on that. and. One of the reasons is a lot of companies have those systems for employees already, but when companies are publishing out new websites or new mobile apps, they tend to need some new capabilities for managing their, their customers and making it easy for customers to, to sign up. So we kind of focus on that. It's like um, Auth0 that Okta acquired. It's very similar mm -hmm. uh, capability that we have in our, in our uh, identity server product. So I feel like from a consumer side on pretty much any competent website, the sign in or law or like sign up experience is pretty ubiquitous, like pretty commoditized. Yep. So what's like, what's the unique part about your uh, identity server? Is it, I mean, I'm sure it has to be more on the back end of the management and security, right? Well, it's really focused. What we really focus on how easy it is for developers to put this in, the login stuff in place. So, we that have pre-built libraries, templates, wizards, GUIs. You know, we're and we're working on a software as a service version of this as well. That'll make it even easier. You can use it in the cloud, and it'll have even more mm -hmm. pre-built templates. So you can just drag and drop your your authentication mm -hmm. bits in. Uh, as as you need them. So we try to make it that easy for developers and make it very quick and productive, kind of like what we're doing with, with Corio. So that's where we try to differentiate ourselves and how easy it is to put all that in place. That's cool. Yeah, we've had um, a, a lot of 
financial services companies on the podcast in the past, like uh, WePay oh, yeah. and Stripe and stuff. And that sounds like you're hitting a similar vein there because that's where a lot of them have found success is in making it easy for developers and being kind of the, the first to make it really easy for developers to implement so that they kind of dominate the market that way. That's the goal. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. So I know you, you said you're really into writing. Have you done any writing recently? Oh, not too much. A few blog posts and here and there, the bits and pieces on, on LinkedIn. I've got a few articles uh, underway. I did a couple, uh, did recently a blog post for the company website. Um, pers personal writing, I don't do too much uh, at the moment. Keep thinking I'll, I'll get back to that someday. When you're like trying to solve a hard technical problem or something, do you ever find that writing about it helps you think about it more and, and come to oh. the solution? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's like um, the old saying, if you're teaching something, that's when you have to really master the topic because you yep. have to really know it well enough to teach it. It's pretty much the same thing with writing. If you can write it down and get it successfully on paper, that's a good way of, of learning and uh, understanding the, the subject. I, I know uh, that the book that I, I wrote, I worked on a book on transaction processing with um, with Phil Bernstein, who's really well known in, in the field. He's in Microsoft research now. And uh, I just learned so much, uh, just putting everything down on paper about all the transaction processing concepts and the different products. Uh, so absolutely, I think writing about it uh, can, can really help. That's really cool. Yeah, that's, that's something that I hear over and over again is like people just, rec like journaling is so valuable and writing in general, either whether it's starting a blog that no one's going to read, it's super valuable for you as a person. Oh, yeah, uh, it, it is. It's, and it's about communication, right? And yeah, sometimes in the industry, especially probably don't understand how communication works with people as well as they do with computers. So, so they will, you know, they'll be thinking, okay, I've written this code and a computer understands and it does what I want it to do. It compiles it into a certain finite state that's reproducible. But with people, they, the communication happens in, the other person's mind it's not how you say something but how it is understood that matters so right. being able to figure out how to express a thought in a way in which is understood by somebody else is, is very important if you're just speaking how you would say something and understand it yourself you're not going to communicate as effectively as if you could you know imagine what it's like for somebody else to hear what you're saying uh, and parse it and understand it. It's not compiled into binary code, right? It's like it's understood through whatever uh, the other person's point of view might be or the other person, the way they're listening or how they hear. So you really have to take into account the audience when you're when you're writing or speaking. And, and I think sometimes uh, technical people get caught up in just solving the technical problem to the point where they understand it in, in their own mind. And then they don't take that extra step of, now, how can I express this to someone else in which will help them understand it the way I do? Yeah, that makes sense. Do you do like a lot of, spend a lot of time on leadership at your company um, and like working with one-on-one -on -one with your direct reports and communicating with them? Yeah, we have, um, I meet with every one of them every other week one-on-one -on -one and try to spend some time just talking about problems and maybe how we can approach things a little differently. 
we have a couple of leadership teams on the senior management level. And I, I try to contribute there as, as well. I've done a lot of things over a lot of years. <laughs> I've been around. Yeah. And uh, so I try to contribute where I can just you know, pick up, you know, relevant topic and maybe contribute what I can whenever something comes up. How would you describe your personal approach to leadership? Well, it's two, two things. One is you, you got to lead by example as much as possible. So don't expect somebody else to behave in a certain way or be punctual or disciplined if you're not willing to be punctual or disciplined yourself because people take the cues for how you behave so how they behave. And the second is really just to try to figure out and help understand what are everybody's strengths and weaknesses that, that are working that you're working with and try to, um, you know, if they need a little help here and there, find a good way to make a suggestion in a positive way. I, I like, I really prefer to work as a team of, of collaborators. As whenever I've, you know, when I look at my past work experience and you know, the best experiences I've always had have been in a team of, of peers or equals and collaborators where everybody's figuring out how to do their part and helping everybody else out getting everybody to succeed, you know, the power of a team like that is much greater than a bunch of individual contributors that you divide the work up to and they go off and work separately. So I try to encourage that as much as possible. And especially, you know, I have a, a CTO office with some pretty senior technologists that work for me. And I, I don't want to feel like I have to tell them to do their jobs. I think they can do their jobs. They wouldn't be senior people unless they knew how to do their jobs. And then I try to just be a facilitator and, and see if I can get the teamwork uh, to be improved and see if I can help uh, coach coach the guys a little bit wherever I can find something I think might be might be helpful but really prefer if I can get a get a team collaborative uh, environment going on uh, the way sometimes the way you can get this to work and I've seen it to work like this before and I, you know, I try to do it myself is to try to figure out a vision of where, where you want to go or some goal that you might have that's a joint goal in common. Um, you know, here we're talking about moving our, our products to the cloud and, and getting people to adopt them and use them in, in production. They're, they're, they're in beta now, so it's going to take a little while. But we have this, this vision and the goal of getting these things adopted in the marketplace and being successful follow on to our existing products. So we want to kind of describe in some detail what that might look like. What's the target state or what's the picture of the vision that looks like when you get there and share that out, syndicate it out, get everybody kind of enrolled in it and say, okay, we're all working toward this same goal, this same vision. Let's figure out each of us, how we can contribute to this and help make it happen. What's the part can I, I can play? What's the part another guy can play? What is the part we can play together and try to get things uh, on that basis. So everybody's moving toward the same goal at the same time for the same reasons, much as possible. Last week, I was talking to a guy named Ryan Westwood. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Simplus. And they do, uh, they're like a digital transformation partner focusing on Salesforce. But anyway, this guy was like a serial entre entrepreneur and like total leadership guru kind of guy. Um, and he's also a venture capitalist. Interesting guy. Yeah. But um he was telling me when he's looking at startups to invest in the number one thing he looks for is vision um, right. of the founder. And there you, you are saying it again, like how important it is to have everyone on the same page with yeah. the vision. 
Well, this is one of the reasons why I, I wanted to join WSO too, because I have known Sanjeeva, the founder, for a long time, and he is a he is a real visionary. He's a top technologist. He has a, a great ability to for vision. He he created the the ballerina language, and I I just you know I really admire the the vision and the, the discipline he had to to work on that and, and get that to the point where it is. And you know I feel like I can come in and help and and lend a hand and uh, you know sign up to that vision myself. And yeah. Going. So yeah, I, 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 when I was at uh, Iona, we had the, kind of the opposite thing happen. We had a CEO originally, one of the founders, who was really real visionary, helped create the. Uh, we were at one time the market leader in Corba, which of course is an older technology now. But he built the company up. In other words, from a, just a startup in in Ireland to, you know, he beat all the big guys, IBM, HP, uh, Sun. All the guys were competing in that market in this little Irish startup outdid them all and he had a you know great vision and great execution unfortunately at one point he had to had to step down and brought in another guy and he was uh, brought in by the board i think primarily to stabilize the company the finances were a little out of control and he did that for a year or two he got the operations under control and and the company was doing well and profitable but then it was a time for what's the next product what's the next vision and he didn't have that and uh, eventually the company went out of business. Yeah, that makes sense. That's um, something I've heard uh, my company's founder, Joel, say over and over again is when he's like looking for his personal investing, the number one thing he looks for is that the founder's still at the company for like when investing in like public companies yeah. and stuff. It's such a tricky thing to have a founder who's you know, built up a company on kind of a personal vision and a personal, personal approach. You know, I, I think companies are like people, the people that found them. They take a lot of personality characteristics from the people that found the, the founders of the companies, <clears throat> how they operate, what the culture is. When they leave, it's, it's a big challenge to make yeah. that transition. I want to ask you about when you're talking about how you really prefer working in a team environment where everyone's collaborating closely and not really being siloed off on their own. How do you encourage that kind of collaboration in a remote work setting because that that seems like a really challenging yeah we talk about that a lot and i've only been remote since i joined since i joined in, in november i haven't had an, I i've been back to the office yet um and i think especially for some of the guys our, our, our base is in sri lanka a lot of the guys who are there would really like to go back in but in the meantime, we just try to make sure we stay in touch uh, by Zoom as much as possible and chat and emails. I've worked in distributed organizations for a long time. And um, what I try to do is I try to remember that whenever you're having a hallway conversation or you run into somebody or you talk to somebody about something, you have to remember all the other people in the organization that need to hear the same thing and reach right. out and call or Zoom or email or something and make sure everybody hears it. But I think it's also important just to have everyone get together as a team once or uh, twice a week and just talk about everything, uh, talk things through. So those two things, you know, get together and then make sure all the communication happens to everybody, everything that's important. That makes sense. All right. So before we wrap up here, is there any anything we didn't get out there that you want to make sure we get out uh, for WSO2? Well, it's... Um, and it's been very interesting making the transition here from financial services back into technology. It's a bit like back to the future. I think we have a, a 
a huge, huge potential to create the next wave of growth here around the cloud products and the simplification, the abstraction of integrations and, and deployments and ID management. And for me, it's, um, you know, like I started talking about step on the modernization journey. So we're going to modernize this company now. Absolutely. And I, I think it's well underway and it's going to be fun. Very cool, man. And uh, are, are you hiring, recruiting anyone else oh, yeah, that yeah. wants to get we are. Yeah, we got we got a lot of uh, open positions. We we hired I think 150 people or so already this year, and we're still we're still wow. going. Yeah, yep. We're up to about 800 people now, and uh, especially we've got a lot of um, focus on trying to build things up in in the U.S. more than uh, we are. We need more more of a team here, and um, trying to build up in in Australia and uh, Latin America as well. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.